you know, I think the creativity and the business actually kind of it's a nice balancing act because there's a part of me that's, you know, very structured and, you know, a little OCD and like making sure that, you know, I optimize, you know, a bunch of stuff. But then I think the other part of me also really loves to imagine things, right? Like I really love to just think about what are the different possibilities that, that things could go. You know, I love stories and I think, you know, like they really have a lot of importance in how, how things work. Hi, I'm Amanda Kua, and this is One More Scoop. Here, we're sitting down with Southeast Asia's top founders, executives, and investors to have honest conversations about their personal journeys and find out what really happens behind the scenes. Patricia Sosar-Joyo is a partner at SeedSars International Ventures, an early-stage venture capital fund focused on emerging and frontier markets. The fund has invested in over 35 countries, backing ventures solving key societal challenges like access to financial services, commerce, healthcare, and education. The fund is part of SeedSars, which was founded in 2012. Before joining SeedSars, Patricia was a venture partner at AC Ventures, an early-stage VC in Indonesia, where she led portfolio management and the value creation platform for the fund. Patricia was also an executive director at Falcon House Partners, an Indonesian private equity fund where she invested in high-growth companies in the consumer space. Hi, Patricia. So great to finally meet you and speak with you today. Hey, Amanda. It's really great to meet with you as well. So unlike other people, I think I've been able to find a lot about them online and get to know them a little more before meeting. <laughs> but with you, this is a totally blank slate, but I'm very excited to get to know you more, especially after all that I've seen. I guess the first thing I really wanted to hear from you was, um, can you tell me a bit more about, you know, who you are? How would you introduce yourself to somebody if I just met you um, on the street and I just happened to chat with you? How would you introduce yourself? Sure. Um, so I am Patricia. I am from Indonesia. I grew up there until I was about 15. And then I went to school in the US. I did my high school and then my university in the US. I have been moving around a lot since I was young and discovered a love of traveling and discovering new cultures. So that has translated into my work. I've basically worked across a few different markets, the US, Asia, particularly Indonesia. And now with CSARS a bit more globally. So yeah, we can get started from there. So I think that was the only thing I could really pick up from the information I could get my hands on. And I was really curious to hear how you got started with your career. I saw that you started working at Lehman Brothers and you started working in the US, but I'm sure that, you know, you could have picked any other country. Could you tell me a bit more about how was it like landing your first job and what were you looking for at the time? Like if I asked Patricia back then, before she landed a job, where would you have wanted to work? Sure. Um, so it was a bit of a combination of chance as well. So, you know, I grew up in a family of entrepreneurs. So I think business has always been all around me. My father had a business. My mom ran a few different businesses. I graduated high school just around 1998 Asian financial crisis. 
So I became really interested with kind of economics and how the world markets kind of affect different countries. So I actually came into Lehman a bit accidentally. I was in college at the time. I had a couple of friends who were going to this Japan career center. I had nothing to do with Japan at the time, but I just wanted to follow <laughs> along with my friends. I was a sophomore. And then I went through some of the booths and I talked to the Lehman guys. And, you know, they said that they're doing an internship in Japan. And at that time, I was like, okay, I don't really have an experience in Japan. And I told them like, look, I don't really know anything about Japan. I don't speak the language. I had done an internship at Citibank the year before, but you know, I, I'd give it a shot. And so after that short interview, they invited me to go back to the evening reception, which is when they would hold the kind of more formal interviews. So I had done an internship at a corporate bank, but knew nothing really about investment banking. I actually kind of wanted to get into advertising. That was kind of my area of interest when I was in college. So what I did was between the time that I finished the short interview at the career fair until I went into the actual interview in the evening, I basically just sat at a Barnes and Nobles, which is a bookstore, which I don't think it's there anymore, but <laughs> it's like a big bookstore chain that has kind of everything. And I just sat at the business section and, you know, tried to do like a crash course on investment banking and then kind of prep my interview for the evening that way. And I got the internship and it was actually initially for Japan, but then they actually sent me to Bangkok, Southeast Asia, because they wanted somebody who has experience in Indonesia and could speak the language because they were working on a few Indonesian deals at that time. So that was my first time in Bangkok. And I ended up coming back for my full-time job, the first one out of college. So you actually wanted to be in advertising when you were in university. Like if I asked you in your uh, freshman year, your sophomore year, you wanted to be in advertising. Yeah, I thought it sounded really cool. You know, I love how understanding how people work, kind of what makes people tick, kind of I think the communications aspects and the creativity. So I did look into that. I think I was always also interested in economics. So those two were kind of, I guess, two competing subjects. And then what made you still follow through with, you know, the interview, then going to the <laughs> dinner when you knew that, you know, you wanted to do advertising, right? Why go through all of that? stress and going to Barnes and Nobles looking for all the bucks <laughs> on investment banking, right? I mean, you were just there to be with your friends. You could have stopped at that. <laughs> yeah. Let your friends get the job. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was an opportunity and I was intrigued. I was just like, wow, like, you know, I never thought about this before. And, you know, I think back then, this is 20 years ago now, I'm totally dating myself. But you know, investment banking definitely had kind of a bit more cachet than it has now. And so I was like, you know what, let me give it a shot. Let's see if I could kind of make my way into it. And then I'll decide whether I wanted to do it or not. And in the end, I like the people that I met. I think the international perspective was really cool. They were talking about working across different markets. And I think also it was kind of the beginning of the recovery after the Asian financial crisis. So I think there were a lot of work to be done in Asia. And that was quite interesting to me at the time. But I think also, you know, at that time, it was just kind of a challenge. I think maybe this is where my interest in advertising comes in. It's like, I love trying to understand what makes people sick and how to crack, you know, certain yeah. situations. So maybe that was that element of adventure. So when you were um, doing your internship with Lehman Brothers, you actually went to Bangkok, like on the ground. Then what did it look like? I mean, yeah. as a college sophomore, you're still young as well. And it's it's very <laughs> fun to get to travel for an internship, right? 
Absolutely. So the internship was during my junior year. So I actually landed in Japan. They put us in a housing and then I met my roommate and she basically said, hey, you're actually not supposed to be here. I heard you're going to be shipped to Bangkok. So I didn't even know. And so I got to Japan that I was supposed to go to Thailand. So I kind of <laughs> just, you know... <laughs> I kind of just rolled up a bunch. Was the trip to Japan free though? <laughs> it was free. Everything was free. Yeah. Everything was very well taken care of. I think I spent two days in Japan at the office and then was told that, hey, you're actually going to Bangkok. So I was like, okay, fine. Bangkok was amazing at that time, Amanda. I mean, this was 2001. I don't know if you've been to Bangkok recently, but the public transportation system had just been open. I think what I loved about Bangkok and the Lehman Group at that time was that it was a fairly small group, but it was a very entrepreneurial group. If you think of New York and London and even Tokyo as kind of the white shoe, refined investment banking with all the slick, you have all the processes, you have all the research. Thailand at that time was kind of very raw. You kind of had to do everything yourself. We didn't have a big research sector in our firm. I think there were only like maybe 30 to 40 people within the investment team. It was really only 20. We were doing real estate investments at the time. So basically buying up assets that were non-performing after the issued financial crisis and then kind of fixing it up and try to resell it. So yeah, it was just like a lot of entrepreneurial. There's a really young team. As young analysts, we were able to get kind of all the exposures that we wanted. I think partly also because they just needed people to work on stuff. And so... My bosses were very open with like, here, just give a shot at anything that you are interested in. It's very cool. I think it was really an interesting time to, to be in Bangkok doing that then. It's like really it was. good timing, I would say. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it was also, I think as an intern, you don't often get the chance to work on life deals. And so being able to get an opportunity to do that as a 20, 21 year old was quite amazing. And I think the other thing was I developed really good friendships from that time. People that I still talk to regularly, really good friends. I went on to work with several other people from the Lehman Group. So I think it was just such a good training ground to get my start in the industry. What did it look like? Were there a lot of people who were also interns at the time or were you just one of few? And when you're on the ground, what did it look like too? There were two interns, so two female college students, same age as me. I'm actually still really good friends with her now. So there wasn't really a structured program. I think if I had done the internship in New York or in Tokyo, there probably would have been like a more structured program of, okay, here's what you do over the course of your three months. Back then, you know, within, you know, our private equity group, it was really just, okay, here you kind of help out on this project. And then maybe you learned about something else. So it's a bit unstructured. So you kind of have to find your way in it. But at the same time, you also have a bit of freedom to explore different things. Back home, at that time, I think it was probably the first time that I was kind of living anywhere as a working adult. And I think to be in Bangkok in 2002, I mean, it's a very safe city. So I think that opened up a lot of opportunities for me. I mean, I'm from Jakarta. I wouldn't necessarily be going around town by myself in Jakarta, but Bangkok always felt very safe for me. So there was a lot of freedom in being able to go out, explore the city and knowing that, okay, I could make my way back. But 
it was also a very, a much wilder place at that time. You know, I think you still had elephants walking the streets. Oh, wow. Yeah, this was like before they were outlawed. So like, you know, people would like- Safe, but with elephants. (laughs) Yeah, it was quite crazy because you'd go out and then you'd have this kind of nightclub areas and you'd have these elephants. I think there were also a lot more of the typical kind of Bangkok hostess bars back then. I think now it's a lot more concentrated in certain areas, so you don't see it as much. But back then, you definitely see it kind of more around the city. And I'm curious, like you said you wanted to be in advertising and that your family's background was really in business. Were you involved with your parents, like family businesses, or were you involved in business before you took on sort of the internships that you took in university? Or were there other influences that made you go into advertising and business? Um, So I wasn't really involved with my parents' businesses, but I had a, I guess, a front row seat to the ups and downs of business. My mom started a few different businesses. I need so did my dad. So I think just being in a family of business people, it was always a part of the conversation. So I think from that, I developed a very deep respect for entrepreneurs who are able to not only start businesses, but also to keep it going, to grow it, and then also to kind of continue to evolve along with the business. Growing up in Jakarta in the 90s, you know, like 80s, I was definitely always aware of the discrepancies. And I think we still see that now, right? I mean, I think in Jakarta and Manila, you see kind of very, very wide gap. And I saw firsthand also how business can really create impact on the ground, whether it's something as simple as creating additional jobs or opening up new avenues for people to grow. So that aspect was quite appealing to me. And I think maybe the connection between advertising and business is I think the creativity. I think you actually need a lot of creativity to be good in business because a lot of the things aren't scripted. Maybe you have a certain ideas of how things are going to go, but things always change. You have to move quickly. And also, I think another connection is that so much of offering a product and service is finding a market fit with your audience, right? With your customers. So I think that's also quite similar with what I imagine you would do in advertising or marketing. Yeah. And you said that for advertising and marketing, you need to be creative. Would you consider yourself like a creative person, I guess? (laughs) This isn't like video recorded, but I do see like the paintings behind you of like flowers, all four different They're kinds of flowers. They're not mine. <laughs> just do a display. Oh, yeah. I was going to say, oh, she's creative. No, I, I do paint, but they don't look nearly as good. Uh, <laughs> but would you still consider yourself yeah, a creative I, person? I think so. So I think, you know, I think the creativity and the business actually kind of it's a nice balancing act because there's a part of me that's, you know, very structured and, you know, a little OCD and like making sure that, you know, I optimize, you know, a bunch of stuff. But then I think the other part of me also really loves to imagine things, right? Like I really love to to think about what are the different possibilities that, that things could go. You know, I love stories and I think, you know, like they really have a lot of importance and how, how things work. So I, I would think so, yeah. What are your hobbies? You have like creative hobbies apart from, you know, painting. And when you paint, okay. uh, what do you paint? <laughs> and when do you paint? <laughs> so I, when I was young, I used to love, you know, painting and drawings um, a lot, just kind of, you know, doodling uh, all over the place. Like, you know, I stopped for a long time. I picked up, picked up back again when I was um, during the pandemic. You know, it's just simple stuff. I'm kind of reconnecting with like doing watercolors again and um, just doing like botanicals, you know, flowers. So very, very simple stuff. 
I think the other hobbies that I have that I probably do more of is, is dancing. So I've always danced, you know, I've done, you know, kind of started with the classical ballet and like ballroom. And then most recently I, I've been doing more of um, Argentine tango as, as a hobby. You get to travel and you do like these social events and you meet different people and it's quite fun. <laughs> oh, that's cool. I would never have guessed that you were a dancer. <laughs> the painting side, I think I could have guessed it out, but the dancing, no. <laughs> When do you dance? Is that like a sort of something you do for fitness as well? Or you just dance for, uh, mostly for, fun? for fun? You know, I think I, I, um, I like the music. I think it helps me to tune out as well, uh, from, you know, kind of the rest of the rest of the world. So I think the the music and the movements, you know, both are, uh, I think very relaxing for me. Normally I just do it, you know, on the weekend and sometimes if there's you know, like events or festivals, you know, I would try to go. Um, and usually this would be like, you know, a weekend full of, you know, different dancing events and you just go and you just dance with a bunch of different people. There's a lot of social elements to it. So you'd go out, you'd have drinks and food and yeah, it's a, a very nice experience. Oh, that sounds cool. How how would somebody get to join one of those? You just like go to one of, are those like in Jakarta often or Singapore often or if I wanted to join one of those, how would I do it? <laughs> um, there are a bunch of different ways that you can start. I mean, I think it's helpful to start with like some lessons just so that, you know, you kind of get the basics. Um, it takes a little bit to kind of get the hang of it. But like, you know, after a few lessons, I think you should be able to like go and then at least you know, experience it and you know, enjoy it a little bit. There's a lot of different clubs, you know, so like if you just search, like let's say like you're going to or Singapore, you just like you could just do a Google search and then you'd probably come up with like a few different events that is happening. And I usually would just, you know, email the or message the organizers and just ask them if there's anything going on. And people tend to be pretty friendly, especially if you're coming out of town and you wanted to kind of explore. It's a really good way to meet people. That sounds super <laughs> fun. I didn't know about those things. I think you could just pop on to to like an event while you're traveling and just Yeah, absolutely. People. I always just heard of like the dance clubs on weekends where it's mostly just locals. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of that too. But, you know, it depends. Like, you know, certain events are like more open, but like generally the community is, you know, pretty welcoming. If you say, about, hey, I'm, you know, I'm in town, you know, I, I don't know how to do it, but maybe do you have any classes that I can try? And then, yeah, generally people would be pretty open and like they're always kind of trying to recruit people too. So. It sounds super adventurous. I would like if I travel, I would have never thought of like joining local classes, especially dance classes. When did you start doing that? How did you think of like joining a class in another country when you're in town for for a few days? I started, I don't know, I can't remember, maybe like 10 years ago. I think I was, I had started dancing and then um, I would just like, you know, look up classes and then see if there's, you know, anything that's going on. I mean, it's always a hit and miss, right? I mean, I've gone through like some classes mm-hmm. and events that were pretty bad and like, you know, not really fun. You know, I've been to a few that are really good. You know, I try to get recommendations, but you know, sometimes like the timings don't work. So mm-hmm. I think there's definitely an element of, of risk as well. But you know, I, I would say at least 50% of the time, it's been pretty good. <laughs> you sound like an adventurous person. <laughs> You worked in a lot of different countries and then you do sort of joint events whenever you're in town at different places. Very cool. If I'm not too lazy. <laughs> Have you always been like this? 
I, I don't know. I guess because I started, I moved abroad when I was quite young, when I was 15 uh, for high school. Um, you know, I think a, a lot of, um, I had a lot of cousins who, you know, went to school in the U.S. too at that time. And I think, you know, back then we didn't have as many opportunities for English speaking schools in, in Jakarta, right? Either you go to an international school like the American school or the British school, which are, you know, really hard to get into, or, you know, you have to go abroad. So I guess I got, I became used from a young age to being in a different environment. And I've always liked it actually, because it's, there's a level of independence that you don't get if you're just with your parents. And I've always loved going to airports. And I feel like, you know, whenever I'm in an airport, it's like the sense of possibility that I could be going anywhere and, you know, and you'd never know kind of what, what you'd find there. So yeah, I guess that part of it's always fun. <laughs> I think it's great to hear that. I think, you know, growing up in Asia, especially as a woman, I don't think a lot of parents are always on board with, you know, having adventurous uh, daughters who like travel around or go around joining a lot of events. So I think it's very fun. And it's nice that you got to do that. You know, honestly, Amanda, I think if I were in, if I were in Jakarta and if I were living closer to my parents and my family, because, you know, in Asia, like they said, the family is also big, right? I probably wouldn't be able to do a lot of these things. I think being away gave me the, the distance. I think they, you know, for them, as long as, you know, I did well in school and, you know, generally kind of, you know, did okay. Um, you know, like it doesn't, the other stuff doesn't matter, but it gave me kind of that opening. I think if I had just, if, if I had grown up, you know, just in Jakarta, I think it would have been a bit different. I think I would be a bit more risk averse and maybe. Even if I wanted to do something, you know, you always have to worry about, you know, kind of having to go through safety, yeah, safety or, or just anybody asking you exactly, about it. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. It's just a longer process. Yeah, you have to you have to pitch exactly. sort of the event or exactly. the class exactly. and the safety. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Audit yeah. it yourself. Yeah. Absolutely. And then maybe someone else will even join you. <laughs> Bring your cousin. <laughs> Completely. So yeah, I think I totally understand um what you're saying in that sense but when you were doing all of those things did you feel like it was something that was different for you it just felt like um you know you're just following what you were doing it's not that you were trying to really push yourself I think I was just going with the flow I mean I, I think I had certain sense of where I wanted to go right I think you know I, I knew that I wanted to um experience a lot of different professional experience um you know I liked exploring different roles and different industries. So I think I, I knew I wanted to do that. But I think in terms of the other parts, a lot of times it's, you know, it's kind of like how I got my first job at Lehman, right? It's like you have a sense and then, you know, you go to, like you put yourself out there, you try to get yourself exposed to different opportunities. And then uh, when an opportunity comes, even if maybe sort of it doesn't the look- wave. <laughs> Yeah, like even if maybe it doesn't look exactly kind of what you had in mind, you know, and like you weren't prepared for it in your mind, I think you can learn to make yourself get prepared, you know, as, as best as you can yeah. and then just kind of take, take your shot, right? I think in your career, I mean, it looks really good when you look at your LinkedIn, all of the places that you've worked in, like the companies themselves, the countries and the way that you built your career. But what have been the toughest times out of building your career um, over the past few years? I think, you know, recently because of the internet, things have become a lot easier for opportunities and all these things. But I think in the time that you were building your career, it's still also difficult. And definitely it still is difficult today. So what have 
your biggest challenges been personally or professionally as you build your career? Sure. Um, you know, I think a lot of things have changed in the last uh, few years in terms of, you know, like you said, technology and also people, I think, being more aware about kind of the work-life balance and having some boundaries. I think, you know, as I was a younger professional, you know, in investment banking, you know, private equity, uh, we weren't really known for that, right? I think it was a lot of, you know, a lot of hours. I was lucky that, you know, I join, you know, really good groups who are, you know, I think relatively nice and friendly. Um, but there's definitely some, you know, difficult personalities as well. Um, you know, I think especially in that industry. So I think early on, you know, learning to deal with difficult people who generally typically are your bosses or your, your seniors, right? And kind of just developing a thick skin, uh, for that was really important. It wasn't easy because I think also, you know, like we're, I think most people are, you know, raised to be somewhat perfectionist, like you wanted to do a good job. And so, you know, I think whenever, you know, like anything, when you feel like you put in a lot of effort into it and then like it, the, the results is not good enough, it, it's quite difficult, particularly coupled with maybe the delivery that's, you know, not necessarily as, as nice as you would like it to be. But, you know, that was an adjustment. Um, I kind of just, learn to deal with it. And I think you, I, I think I experimented with different ways of how to, to be effective. And I think definitely back then it wasn't, I think emotional intelligence, you know, kind of wellness. I think that wasn't really a big thing. So, um, you know, it was just kind of more of a straightforward direct approach and like, you know, don't, don't think too much and don't, you know, don't take anything personally. I mean, as much as you can, it's, it's still hard. So in my last few years of high school, um, and when I was hoping to graduate and, you know, prepare for college, I'd always thought that I actually wanted to be an investment banker. So your the start of your career was what I wanted the start of my career to be like. And when I mentioned that to my um, high school counselor, she actually mentioned that she'd worked at Wall Street at a time. And something I heard from her was that, you know, I think as a woman, maybe especially as a woman, they they try to be very, very hard on you. She mentioned that in her interview, they tried to make her cry and all of these things. But as somebody who had been in investment banking yourself and as a woman in those times, do you think that there were any difficulties in your career ever really directly related to you as a woman? Or do you think that's sort of a myth? Um, I didn't have direct kind of experience of that. So I think I was also lucky because I think I don't know if it was the combination of Southeast Asia, like we had a, a group of like, you know, expats and, and locals, but like generally the working environment was okay. Um, I do notice though, there were a lot of, um, I guess, biases that people didn't realize. And I think also, you know, 10, 20 years ago, I think what was considered okay then is probably not okay now, right? So I think there were a lot of biases about, um, you know, people would ask, okay, what's, you know, like, you know, family like are you gonna quit your job like you know if you were to like get married and like you know have a family or you know people would you know ask like you know personal questions I think definitely there were some clients that or prospective clients that you know you kind of had to learn to to deal with uh in a way to, to set your boundaries but um I think in terms of my own career um I don't think I felt kind of really any discrimination. I do think, though, that um, 
in a lot of cases, I think the performance reviews for women could be harsher. Like I, I, I don't really have, you know, statistics for this, but, um, you know, just kind of reading about how, how men and women are, could be treated differently. Um, I, I used to recruit a lot of people for my portfolio companies. So these were companies that, you know, my, my fund invested in and like, you know, we helped them grow. And part of that, that work was hiring, you know, senior level executives. And, um, it was interesting that, you know, we had different candidates, you know, male and female. And when the, the male, uh, negotiated for a lot of things like perks, higher salary, um, the response was like, oh, he's, you know, he's a hustler, you know, like he's, you know, he's going to get us like a lot of money. And then I had another candidate who, you know, she was not really negotiating a lot, which is also a trait that I, I see a lot in all of the, the candidates that I recruit, but she was just kind of more asking, uh, a few specific questions about, you know, the working environment because she wanted to make sure that, you know, she was going into the right place for her. And some of the feedback that I got was like, Oh, she's asking so many questions. Maybe she'll be a difficult person. And it is. So it's just like, Oh, that's really interesting. Um, you know, so some of the advice that's out there, you can't always apply it blindly because maybe the reception is different, unfortunately. And I think something else that I noticed is that, you know, you started out in investment banking and then you started working in VC, private equity, and then back to VC. How did you get your start in VC and what made you decide to, you know, keep on working in Southeast Asian tech? As a VC. Sure. So, um, I started, uh, I started with Lehman, you know, it was investment banking, but it was always kind of more the buy sides of the private equity. And then, uh, most recently I moved to Jakarta in 2013 to join a new private equity fund, uh, called Falcon House Partners, which is, you know, one of the leading and one of the first, uh, consumer focused private equity. This was, yeah, 2013, which is, I would say, you know, kind of the early days of consumer sector in Indonesia. I think you started seeing the, you know, consumer spending go up. Um, there were a few other, you know, private equity funds. So we invested in a lot of traditional businesses, you know, like a lot of F&B, retail, hospitality, hospitals. So I did that for about six years uh, until 2018. And then I would say from like 2016 onwards, I started seeing kind of the seeds of tech, right? I mean, obviously, 2012, you have, you know, the Rocket Internet Group, you know, Lazada that started to uh, started to come into the market, but I would say that around 2015, 2016, you started seeing, you know, some of these companies became bigger. And so I've been kind of following it. Um, and I was interested in it, but of course we didn't have the, the mandate to do it from the PE fund. But one of the hypotheses that I had at that time was that I think these two sectors will really converge. I think, um, tech will, will stop to be its own thing and it will kind of really permeate every aspects of, you know, of life. And. What was really fascinating for me too is that, you know, I've been following the market for a long time and I, you know, one of my, my passion is also kind of creating impact and development. And a lot of the issues that I've seen, you know, like access to finance, um, you know, access to education, it was really hard to solve, you know, and I think it was only when tech came around that, you know, we started seeing like, oh, hey, you could actually create solutions that are affordable and could be scalable. So I started following it, you know, I, I left my, my fund because I wanted to take some time off and kind of, you know, re, recalibrate, you know, where I was. Um, I kept in touch with the startup community and, um, started advising a few female founders actually on, on fundraising. And I, 
joined um, AC Ventures, uh, which is you know one of the leading Indonesian uh, VC fund in 2021. Um, I've known the partners for quite some time, and at that time, they had just um, completed the merger um, to become a larger fund. And I always love coming in early. I think all the funds that I've joined, I was always there at the beginning, so I really love that kind of beginning building process. And so, um, you know, I decided that I was going to be a venture partner with them for a year. Not so much on the deal sourcing, but more on uh, the portfolio side. So figuring out, you know, what can we do to add value to the portfolio companies, you know, how to build the fund and, you know, work closely with the with the management team and did that for about a year or so before I joined Seedstars. And how did you sort of get to the partner level? I think for me, one thing that stood out is there aren't a lot of women in the partner level. And I think you're still relatively young, even though you said you're dating yourself. And at the partner level already. So as somebody who is totally outside of the VC scene, though I'm still in tech and don't really know so much about the, you know, how you get up um, the ladder in VC, how would you um, get to the partner level and how did you do it? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think this is a topic that I always kind of love to talk about because, you know, at some point in my career, um, you know, I noticed that I, I don't have a lot of um, kind of female contemporaries anymore. <laughs> a lot of people, you know, I <laughs> you know, like when I was in private equity, like a lot of my friends, you know, stopped working or they moved into a different world. So I would say that there's different ways, you know, I think in a, in a relatively young market, like, you know, Southeast Asia or other emerging markets, in some ways, I feel like there are more opportunities because you can create your opportunities. I think especially now with, you know, you see some solo GPs, you see micro funds, you know, you see operators who became VC, you know, investor who became VC. Um, I think before in private equity, it was always, I, I feel like a more clear cut path, right? Like, you know, you, you're an investor for, you know, for a few years, you work your way up and then you, you know, you become a general partner. But I feel like VC is a bit more open that you can actually do it from different disciplines, right? I think there's definitely values and, you know, operators for an investor and also like, you know, investors who continue to be investors. So I would say that uh, a few one path is, you know, doing it your own, right? You, you know, you could create your own fund, um, either a solo GP or like with a few partners. It's not easy, um, but, you know, you could always start, you know, like AngelList or, you know, MicroFunds. Uh, that's fun. Secondly, you know, you join kind of, you know, a, a newer fund and you build that together, which is what I did with, with Seedstars. So Seedstars as, um, as a group has been around for, for 10 years, but for the last 10 years, they've been focusing more on, building entrepreneurial ecosystems, always focused on emerging markets, but they were uh, more focused on, um, you know, creating communities, you know, education, and that part of the business is still going strong, but they, you know, they, they learned that actually they had a lot of opportunities to start investing. So that's when um, kind of the capital side was established. And then I would say the the third option is, yeah, you you work with a fund, right? Maybe you start as, um, I don't know, as an associate and like you work your way up. And then if you like it, then you, um, demonstrate value. Then I think you can eventually get to management. I think, uh, maybe the challenge with that last part is it's often difficult to expand the GP pool, right? So it's like either you have to, to become a GP with a, with a new fund within a platform, but you know, to have an allocation of an existing uh, existing fund is, is usually difficult if you're not there from the beginning. I think things make uh, a bit more sense when you look back, right? So when you look back at how you broke into 
the VC and how you became a partner, what do you think were the opportunities you created or the quote-unquote good moves you made um, that helped you become a partner? I think it was a series of calculated risk-taking, I would say. I think Lehman for sure was a risk. You know, I didn't really know the industry. I didn't really know Japan or Thailand, uh, but then just kind of, you know, went there and like, you know, did the best I could. And then, um, you know, when I joined, you know, Falcon House Partners, it was a new fund, you know, first fund. Um, I was working with a consulting company at that time, LEK. So I think it was a, a trade off of, you know, leaving something that was a bit more stable into uh, a venture that was unproven. So I think, I think you always need to kind of take that risk because otherwise you're, you could be in a safe pool all the time, which could probably still be good, but it'll just be a different experience, right? And um, and I think, yeah, I think the same way, you know, after I was, you know, in PE for a few years and then I felt like, okay, it's uh, it's really interesting, but I feel like there's something else out there. Um, and then, you know, I, I took the leap and, you know, kind of risk, you know, taking taking a break and exploring different options uh, before kind of coming back in uh, to VC. When you took the break, did you know that you would get into VC or try to get into VC or was it still like open-ended? Like maybe you get into VC, maybe you'll go to private equity, maybe you'll do something else. Um, maybe you'll dance. <laughs> no, that that was completely fair. I think, um, you know, I I intentionally did not want to set any goals for, for the break because I felt like if I do that, I would just end up making it a project and then it wouldn't be relaxing. So I actually spent a few months traveling uh, in Europe no real itinerary, no real goal, just kind of, I guess, learning, remembering how to be in the moment again. And I think what I found was that in order for me to be creative and inspired, you know, I need to have that blank space, you know, blank time. And I think it carries carries forward with, with working too. You know, I think we could, it's so easy to spend our days just executing uh, because that's kind of what's right in front of us, or at least for me. But when I am disciplined about, you know, having those those time away um, from work, uh, whether it's, you know, dancing or running and whatnot, I feel like everything is actually still in my head. It's just that it takes time to, to gel. So no, the break, I, I didn't really, I didn't really have a sense. I just wanted to take a break. I knew that, of course, I could come back, you know, to PE. And then like, you know, I think even VCU at that time was still quite a, not, not so big of a, of a transition, but I wanted to give myself the time to explore different aspects of it and make sure that I was kind of ready for the next, let's say, like, you know, five to 10 years of digging into something, something new. How did you know that you needed to take a break and sort of a break like that? It's an extended period of time and open-ended. Yeah. I think when things just become, became too routine, you know, like it's, um, you know, at that time I had been at the, at the fund for about five plus years, you know, I'd done a, a few transactions, you know, um, saw, you know, saw some of the, the fruits of, of the work, I guess, you know, you see the portfolio companies grow and that's always very rewarding. Um, but after some time, you know, you start to see that, okay, there's a, there's a routine to this. I think it was more driven though, by the sense of, I felt like something else was happening. You know, I felt like something else was, was growing. I feel like the industry is going to change and I wanted, I didn't know what it was at that time. And I wanted time and space to explore that. So during the break, I mean, I, I traveled, but I also looked at new subjects like, okay, why aren't more women investing? Why, you know, aren't more women talking about investment opportunities? Like when I'm with my guy friends, they talk a lot about, oh, I invested in this, I invested in that, you know, like what's your, 
what's your tips? And um, so I became really curious about, you know, topics like, you know, like women and money, women and investing. Why aren't there enough, you know, as many, you know, women founders? What are the, what are the barriers to that? So it's a complex subject. I, I don't think you'll be able to pinpoint it into just a few things. But um, for me, it was time to actually take a step back and be like, hey, you know, like these things are there. You know, there are these discrepancies. There are these barriers, whether you can see it or not. And I think a part of me was like, okay, can I, can I do something for this? You know, even if it's maybe just, you know, a small part. This is super interesting because uh, the reason I asked about the break is because uh, for me, when I graduated high school, I graduated in the pandemic um, 2020 and I decided to take a year off, but I actually didn't know what I would do next. So I sort of also had an open ended break, except I had a ticking time bomb of my parents asking me, OK, what are you going to do for the next one year? But, you know, when I heard what you said, I remembered what I was doing at the time and I was also just trying to explore. So every day I took like different Coursera courses. Uh, research different topics, tried to meet different professionals in different fields I was interested in um, before I ended up landing um, on the topic of like startups and tech. And then after that, I tried to break into to tech myself. <laughs> I mean, I think those are the best, right? I, yeah, I, I think those kind of unstructured time, I think it's actually super valuable because you get to sort of experiment different things. And I think this is something that I've come to appreciate, right? I think um, in order to to know whether something will work or has a potential, you have to experiment and you have to like, you know, put in some effort to set it up, to figure out, okay, what's my, you know, what's my kind of control environment? What do I want to see out of it? And like, if it works, it's, you know, maybe uh, a sign to go further into it. But if it doesn't, then it's like, you know, a sign to sort of either you kind of tinker with it again and come up with another approach or, you know, maybe it's just something that was a passing idea that was great, but, you know, not really, um, something that could be lasting, which is okay too. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great way to put it. I think with a long break like that, it's so important to stay open-ended, but constantly explore, then constantly move on to the next thing when you don't think the other thing is working. I think that was what, what personally helped me as well. I wanted to sort of go back to the basics of like, what do I actually want? Because it was so chaotic outside, at least for me personally with the pandemic, right? I didn't understand the world around me anymore and I didn't understand what I would do next. So I had to just start from zero again. <laughs> Is that how you approach it as well? Like sort of starting from zero, not expecting anything from yourself? Yeah, I, I think so. I think I was I was very conscious of the risk of jumping into the next job, right? Because I mean, I'd been working at that time for I don't know, like 15 years or so, like, I don't know, 13, 15 years. And, um, you know, because, you know, in, you know, in PE and PC, I think there's, the in Southeast Asia, like the the talent pool, I, I think at least at that time was still pretty thin, right? So it would it would have been easy, relatively for me to join, you know, another fund. And I did, um, you know, I did speak to a few people just to kind of, you know, ex- keep that options open and see if I wanted to do it. And I realized that, like, hey, you know, I really need to be disciplined about not accepting anything for the next year because otherwise, if I don't do that, then I'll just continue on the same path. I also had a, a a step time and I think that was important. Like I had some like ideas of, okay, the first three months I, I just wanted to travel. I just wanted to completely zone out and like do something completely different. I danced a lot. You know, I went to different festivals, <laughs> you know, like I, I traveled all, all around Europe doing, you know, different, like, you know, 
tango festivals. And that was fun just to kind of reconnect with that side of me. But then I planned, okay, after I came back, you know, to Jakarta, after that first three months, you know, I wanted to start exploring A, B, and C. In the and professional then, side. Yeah. Like, I mean, more kind of like research, like what you did, you know, just kind of exploring different topics, talking to different people. And then I, I'd given myself a year um, also. So I think it worked out pretty well by the time that I was, I'd say like in the halfway point, you know, I started feeling like, oh, you know, I, I feel like I want to build something again. I, you know, I wanted to kind of get back into the activity again. So I actually joined up with uh, two partners and, um, and I did um, uh, an advisory business for a little bit, which is called um, Connecting Founders, which is focused on yeah. uh, working with, you know, female founders to, to help them raise. So that was kind of um, a reintroduction. And then afterwards, I was like, okay, and I got pulled back onto the deal side, which, you know, something that I realized I missed because that was something that I've always, you know, liked. So, but by that point, I felt like, okay, you know, I've, I've had my exploration. I think I, I have a, a sense of what the next iteration was going to be. And I think one area of growth for me was, I think, going beyond Southeast Asia. I saw that the, the trend of startup is quite replicable in a lot of different markets. I was always excited by emerging markets and so i one of the the goalposts in my head was like okay it would be nice to um to expand beyond southeast asia and to to stretch myself also with with new new countries and new markets and sort of what are the signs for you now that you're on the right track um that i'm still uncomfortable <laughs> <laughs> i think you know i think it's uh Going from like a, a country specific fund, um, just looking after, you know, Indonesia and you know, a little bit of the region to going to a, a global fund, uh, a new global fund that we still have to, to build and, um, looking at a lot more markets. You know, we do now seed stars, uh, international ventures. We do, um, Asia, Latin America, Africa and Nina. So that's, you know, a lot of countries that I was not familiar with yet. So I think that part, you know, I know when I'm on the right track because. I feel like I still need to learn a lot and, you know, every day is a bit like an adventure and like I, I'm enjoying learning about the, I guess, the nuances of the different markets. So I think like when you see somebody who's a partner at a BC firm, you always think like, oh, wow, they must just be doing like the really tough higher level work. But I don't think I ha really have an idea of what that actual work is. So if you were to share, like what's something that people might be surprised about that is part of your role? Hmm. Okay, that's a really good question. Um, and I mean, this might be different, different for different people. I would say that it's, you know, it's a combination of, um, there's deal work for sure. I think there's still a lot of, a lot of research in terms of kind of, you know, refining your, your investment thesis and kind of always checking whether you're on the right path, talking to a lot of people. I think for me, a big surprise and like kind of this private equity and like DC business was just how much time I would end up spending, uh, talking to talent and trying to identify talent. Um, I think in the end, it's a big part of it's a people business, right? I think you, you develop relationships and, you know, you, talent's always at a premium and it's part of the, part of the job that's also really enjoyable is speaking to, you know, a lot of smart people who are trying to build different things. But, you know, I think there's also, if you're, if you're building an emerging fund, you know, like a new fund, there's also still quite a bit of like, you know, the grunt work too, right? You have to set things up. You have to, you know, kind of do part of the admin as well. So, um, as one of my first bosses at Lehman said, you know, when, when you're a leader, you're like, you know, you're 
you're both directing and you also are kind of the janitor. Like, you know, you kind of mm-hmm. pick up the pieces when, you know, when, yeah. when things go wrong as well. And I guess what's a day in the life for you, like a typical day in the life? So I usually try to kind of block out my day. So like there's a day when like I just do a lot of the um, kind of portfolio work. And that means like, you know, looking at new investments that the team would bring, kind of like, you know, deciding whether they would go into the investment committee, um, looking after the analysis, you know, that's one part of it. Definitely speaking to founders and speaking to uh, people in the community. Um, so, so a big part of, um, of my day. And I think third is, you know, spending some time looking into kind of, you know, sector deep dives, right? Like, so we invest mainly in, uh, future of commerce and future of, of finance. So trying to understand kind of the nuances of, of these verticals and the subsectors, uh, in the different, uh, different countries and the different markets and trying to see, okay, what themes do we think are going to come out, uh, next for, you know, country A and country B. And then when it's time to like shut the laptop and <laughs> on a day that you're not dancing, what are you doing? <laughs> oh, honestly. And what time do you shut the laptop <laughs> on a typical day? Oh, that's a hard one. So now I work with the, I work with the global team and we're all remote. So okay, I, I try to be disciplined and kind of like having a, a good kind of cut of time before dinner, but it's always a, a challenge and I do need to kind of be connected uh, every now and then after. So I I try to have a, a close kind of before dinner and like go running or, you know, do yoga or something just to sort of kind of change that brain waves. And then, you know, if there is, you know, if there's a, an urgent deal or, you know, something is, is happening, then, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll check back in. But yeah, it's, um I'm still, still working on that part. <laughs> And what's something about you that maybe your coworkers or people that you work with professionally would be surprised to hear about, you know, apart from the dancing again? <laughs> um, I have a weakness for really bad jokes. I don't know why, but... Like dad jokes or like what kind of jokes? Or if you have an example, I think that would <laughs> oh, be no, great. No, I, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> um, I don't know. Um, it would be really surprising. Um, Hmm, that's a tough question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think I'll take the bad jokes okay, then. <laughs> yes. Well, I, you know, maybe actually one thing. Oh, actually, there is um something that'd be surprising. Um, so one of my my best work experiences when I was a college student was actually being a telemarketer. I was fundraising. Yeah, I was fundraising for my university, and I think it was hands down one of the hardest jobs I've ever done. And one of the best learning opportunities is like we had to sit there at a call center for like four hours and basically just like call up alumni, you know, asking them for for money. It was really, really hard. And it was really good because I feel like I've never had that many kind of phone like slam in my face, like in such a short period of time. <laughs> and from alumni, from right? alumni. Fellow yeah. alumni. <laughs> I mean, we were calling them at dinner time. I don't know why they did it that way. Um, but it's like, oh. we have to call them like, you know, from I think seven or I don't know, six to nine or something like that. So like, you know, we'd call them, you know, bothering them in a way, right? And so like most of them be like, I don't want to talk to you. Don't like call me again ever. Um, I had a bad experience at the university. And so as a as a freshman, <laughs> that was pretty demotivating. I would never put any money because of that. Yeah, <laughs> that's what they probably said, right? Yeah, exactly. 
But what was amazing was that after some times, A, okay, I got less bothered by the rejection, which, you know, I think ended up being a, a good thing for my future work. And then B, like, you actually do learn how to kind of connect with people and actually manage to get some donations. And, you know, it's a combination of like, you know, figuring out, you know, different scripts, different value proposition, but then the big part of it is just kind of trying to have a connection with them. And, you know, some people just don't want to talk, which is fine, but there were others who were kind of willing to talk. And then, you know, you could actually get, convert them into, um, donors. Into donors. <laughs> yeah. But that was, so I, I'm always nice to telemarketers now, even if they bother me and be like, okay, I can't talk because I remember what it was like. I could relate to you. <laughs> Did you sign up for that or was that assigned to you? No, I signed up for it because that was the best paying job on campus for a very good reason. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, you just had a roster of like people basically on your, on your computer and you would, you know, you just have to call them, um, all night. But we had a really good coach. She was teaching us a lot about kind of sales and how to like, you know, move forward and, you know, know when to close. So it, it was actually really good, but really hard. Okay. That's super interesting. <laughs> First time I've heard about that. When I heard about like university funds, I never assumed that I would be students ringing people up. <laughs> yeah. Even before. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I, I went to Tufts University, which is like, um, a, you know, a mid-sized school, right? Like I, in the US, you would have these big universities that has, you know, big endowment funds, which, you know, basically means that you could, you know, have more scholarship, you could um, give more scholarship, you know, even without need, um, what they call like kind of blind scholarship. So Tufts didn't really have this huge endowment fund. So the, the kind of telephone, <laughs> telemarketing was, was a big part of kind of trying to get people to, to donate. Yeah. <laughs> Super interesting experience. I'm going to research a bit into that later. And I guess just to close, I have one last question. And I asked this, I asked everybody this before we close every, every chat. And it's outside of work, what's one thing you want to achieve in your personal life that doesn't have to be something you achieve today, next month, this year, no specific timeline, but outside of work, um, what's one thing you want to achieve in your personal life? Hmm. Are you talking about like a goal or something that you wanted to do? Anything. So any, whatever okay. that means to you. All right. So one thing that I would love to do is actually to do a multi-day kind of equestrian ride. Like you could do this, like, um, like in different countries, like you would go for like three or four or five, you know, three or four days, you know, you just go from like one location to another, you ride and then you camp and then, you know, you ride again. Um, I haven't done that yet um, because I am not, I, I don't have the right skills yet, but that's something that I'm, I'm working towards um, to be able to do those long distance rides. Okay. That's the first time I've heard about that. But the other day I heard for the first time from somebody that they did like a month long or multi-month long walk in Europe. So oh, wow. I guess now I'm not that surprised about um, all of these things. <laughs> I'm learning about a few things I can add to my bucket list. <laughs> it's something something to work for. You know, I think, um, uh, I, I, I've, yeah, I, I've done the short ones, but I think to, in my head, I was like, wow, that would be a challenge to actually be like five days, just like on horseback. I just camp, but then do it all over again for five days. And it sounds very cool. Like, if you had like a GoPro or could document that, I would watch it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you know when, when that comes to fruition. Hopefully yeah. not, not too long from now, but I've, I've got some work to do. Well, now, 
we'll all be holding you accountable. Me and whoever listens to this. <laughs> if we this awesome. See, is listen to somebody in five years and you haven't done it, then <laughs> you're in trouble. <laughs> that's that's part of the joys, right? It's like you put it out there. It's like, oh yeah, I, I remember I did say that, you know, or like you I write things down and then something's like, oh my god, I said that I was gonna do that like a year ago and then you know, nowhere near that. But I'm I'm okay with with being held accountable. I think that would, that's a fun goal to be held accountable for. Yeah, and I'm excited uh, to see you achieve <laughs> that. And I don't know if I'll do it, but I will look into it and try to see who else has done it because it sounds very cool. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time, Patricia. This has been super fun. Again, I am just finding more and more things to add in my bucket list. Maybe that's the whole goal of this podcast. <laughs> I am so excited to be able to share this with you. I think it's it's always awesome to um, you know to speak with people, and I think you know especially to you know I love what you've been doing, and I think the the perspective of like you know speaking with different people from a personal level, I think that's it's really refreshing. Right? I think that's something that we often forget. I, I think that's also something that you know I try to remember to do it's like you know you're working with people you're founders or like team members and you know everyone more than just kind of what they do uh day in and day out they've got their own quirky stuff maybe i'll use some of these questions for my next um you know like team icebreaker actually yeah you should i think the reason why i'm also so interested in this is because i i just started working like in 2020 it's only been like almost three years or less than three years and going from high school straight into work i feel like you always know the personal side of everyone from school and then you go to work and you realize oh people have a work side and a personal side <laughs> that's so awesome though i love what you felt so looking forward to kind of following where um where you go next If you're enjoying this podcast, you'll love Backscoop. It's our free daily newsletter that makes it fun, quick, and easy to stay informed with the latest news in Southeast Asian startups. You'll be in good company. Thousands of leading founders, executives, investors, and startup operators in Southeast Asia are already reading. Subscribe for free on www.backscoop.com or in the link in our description below.